Galatians 2, 11 through 14. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with, with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Ashley. Good morning, everybody. Welcome again to Park Hill Church. My name is Evan. My wife, Sandy, and I have the honor of leading this church. And we are in a series called Galatians, One New Family. And uh, yeah, if you don't have a Bible, I think there's folks that can pass them around and you can get one and follow along. We're going to go through this text. It's not very long. You just heard Ashley read it. It's four verses. That's all we're covering today. It's a big one. There's like identity issues and peer pressure and all kinds of like layers to this little passage that pertain to us. So, um, so the backstory, where are we at? It's the year, it's the year 50 AD, 50 AD, right? This man, Paul, do you have that picture of Paul? I don't know if you have, there he is. It's exactly what he looked like, (laughs) but that's St. Paul. So this guy writes a letter to churches, plural churches, And he had diamonds all over his scrolls like that. Um, But it's it's nice. So he wrote he wrote this letter to churches, plural. I don't know if you knew that. When you think of the Galatian church, you think of scattering all over Galatia. You think of house churches without without a big Sunday thing. It was very decentralized, except for these letters and these apostles. There wasn't a mega church at that time. Uh, It was churches. Um, in modern-day Turkey, that's where he wrote this. Yeah, it's Galatia. It's modern-day Turkey. Uh, and the, point, the problem was that this church was supposed to be one family, united around the table, but the family's breaking up. That's why we're titling this, this series One New Family. It's exactly who God intended them to be and us to be, but they're breaking up. Tribalism is creeping in. Uh, the church in Galatia started diverse, like this beautiful multi-ethnic mix of Jewish and Gentile cultures together at the table. Paul knew this diversity was God's plan all along. It was God's plan all along. Way back in Israel's origin story with Abraham, the plan was that one day God would come to save every culture, every nation, every language through Jesus. And everyone who trusts in Jesus for forgiveness and healing would be part of this one great, big, beautiful family. My wife texted me earlier this week about that song that we sang, Same God. And the the song Drew led us in this morning, Oh God, Oh God, How I Need You. It's like, I'm calling on the God of Jacob. I'm calling on the God of Moses and the God of Mary and David. We're part, and she texted me, like we're both weeping from a distance over text. That was the first time I heard the song she shared. And I'm like, and she's like, this is, we're part of this one big, beautiful family with a crying emoji, she said. And and this, this was the plan all along that we would be part of this thing. This is the good news, you guys. This is the good news. And it's the good news Paul was giving the churches in Galatia. But because of negative pressure, peer pressure from the outside, the Galatian Christians are forgetting the gospel. 
They're refusing to eat and drink together, dividing up in tribes. So why is this happening? Here's, here's a map. I think we have the map of Galatia. So right up there is, that's exactly what Paul looked like, by the way. Um, region of Galatia. And down here you have James, the brother of Jesus, leading the church in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was kind of like the headquarters, of, well, obviously, of Jewishness, because it's the capital of Israel at the time. But it's also of, it also produced a very unique, uniquely Jewish brand of Christianity at the time. I know it's radically understated. If you're a historical theology major, you want to kill me right now for, for how I'm reducing this. But, but, but the fact is, there was a group that came from James Church with a very, how I said, a Judaizing gospel. Hey, you Gentiles got to become like us in order to belong. I'm not saying James preached that. James was spot on. But some folks under James got the wrong idea and started presenting this Jewish cultured gospel message all over the place. And it got to Galatia, right? It got to Galatia and, uh, and it poisoned the water. And it started breaking up the beautiful unity that God had birthed there. And, and so, um, this, and Paul called this a false gospel, so this false, false gospel of division was ruining church unity in their time, just like false gospels of division are ruining church unity in our day about literally anything, everything people are dividing over, right? Back then it was become Jewish to belong. Today it's, it could be as, 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 as simple as dress like this to belong or vote like us to belong or agree with me about global events to belong at this table. Otherwise, you're stupid. And we, we write people off. Fill in the blank. We do this in the church. And the result is broken, strained relationships. And we feel the pain of this in our homes, right? Relationships aren't what they used to be for, for a lot of us because of this. We're a lot less curious about each other. It's like our childlike wonder got burned in 2020 in 2021, and now everyone's just a little sore, a little too sensitive to ask honest, healthy questions that lead to safe conversations where we're enriched by our differences. It's like, what even is that anymore in many ways? Because ultimately we've forgotten, here's what we've forgotten, that the capital E enemy is the enemy. The capital E enemy is the enemy, you guys. The real conspiracy Back then and now, the real conspiracy is from Satan. And it's designed to get you focused on narratives and systems that are virtually irrelevant to your daily life. Your call to love God and neighbor through scripture reading, eating and drinking, and prayer and hospitality and generosity. It's like we have this gravitational pull that's working against us so that we forget this. We forget the reality we live in. We forget that Ephesians 6.12, we forget that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and authorities and powers of this dark world and spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. It's like we're all under this pressure to, to forget that and lose sight of the reality. And that's what today's passage shows us. It's these four verses where Paul tells a story. He tells the Galatians a story of what happened back in Antioch. And in short, it's a very short story, but it's very punchy. And in this story, the apostle Peter, you guys know Peter? I don't have his picture. It probably looks a lot like Paul. 
The Apostle Peter, the right-hand man of Jesus, right? The wingman, Jesus' wingman. Peter loses sight of the gospel. Peter does. And Paul calls him out publicly for this. So we're going to walk through the story and we're going to see Paul's thought process. Here's Paul's logic. Even the best of us can lose sight of the gospel and focus on the wrong enemy because peer pressure is powerful, which is why we need deep community. This is the logic of this sermon and this passage. We lose sight of the gospel, forget who the enemy is because peer pressure messes with our vision and our identity, you guys. So before we go through the text a verse at a time, we have to keep in mind, as God's people today in San Diego, we don't like to admit something. We don't like to admit uh, that we actually, all the opinions you have, the opinions and, and thought processes, so many of them, we absorb those things from our environment. We didn't come up with them. You're not that original. Um, we all are this way. And, and, and then our behaviors that flow out of our opinions, we got those from our environment too, in a lot of ways. We like to think that we're thinking for ourselves and acting for ourselves because we're mostly Americans here and we value the individual and freedom and all that. But in reality, we are being formed, like it or not, under constant peer pressure from people we spend time with and the media we consume and all of that. I know we know this, but, but we are, I think we're aware of a fraction of it, honestly. For Jesus followers, it's so important we're aware. We're, constantly waking up to this, this pressure that's constantly happening to you and me. The reason is because, listen, your primary identity, your main identity is loved, child of God. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is king and that his agenda is what you're primarily after, well, then you become a child of God. And the truest thing about you is that you're, you're loved, you're a loved daughter and a loved son. But when, but when as, as God's kids, we start walking through the world, when we start believing the negative pressure and the negative press all around us, then our primary identity quickly becomes something other than child of God. Before we know it, it's I'm a student. Or I'm a teacher. Or I'm a pastor. I need to have something to say. This is who I am. I'm a parent. I'm a naval officer. I'm a victim. I'm an extrovert. I just don't do that because I'm an extrovert. Or I'm an introvert. I'll never do that. I'm single. I'm married. I'm Enneagram whatever. <laughs> and, and, and these things then self-fulfill themselves. And they keep you in cycles. In many ways, some are good. These can quickly become the most true thing about you in your mind, though which then drives your behavior and how you spend your money and what you, your language and your, your opinions so that you can keep on fitting this identity, right? It's, it self-perpetuates. And, and this, this interplay, this relationship between your identity and peer pressure around you, it's core to being human. It's how we've survived as humans for millennia. This tribe thing, it has its perks, keeps people alive, Right? And, but it can change your behavior. It's powerful. It changes your habits because it gets down, it rewires how you self-identify. Peer pressure changes us. And by the way, peer pressure changes us for better or worse. It can go both ways, right? I say for better because there's a bright side to peer pressure. In the language of Jesus in the New Testament, it's called fellowship. 
spiritual community. And that's what our story is about today. It's about a dark side of peer pressure called tribalism. And it's also about the bright side of peer pressure called community. Both have the power to change you at your deepest level. So let's jump right in. Four verses, Galatians 2, 11 through 14. Here we go. When Cephas came to Antioch, who's Cephas again? Peter, that's just one of his many names. Uh, When Cephas, Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Big words, Paul. Talking about Peter here, be careful. Peter is uh, Jesus' right-hand man, as we've discussed, but Paul says he stands condemned, and Paul faces off with him. Why? Uh, Well, first of all, standing condemned in this case obviously doesn't mean he's damned to hell because there's Peter. What would heaven be without Peter at the gate checking you in, right? So he's not going to hell. Standing condemned doesn't mean his soul is damned. Um, In all seriousness, Peter would go on to write some of the Bible. Peter would write some of the Bible and um, be the first bishop of Rome. So he can't be condemned to hell. What does Paul mean? When Peter stands condemned, a, a better way to understand this is that Peter's, Peter's actions exposed his lack of integrity. His words contradicted his behavior. His own internal logic was critiquing him. That's what Paul means. He's, he stands condemned. He's a walking contradiction. He's living a lie. So that's quite an accusation, Paul. Can you back that up? Paul's like, yes. Verse 12 He says, for before certain men came from James, he, Peter, used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. Right here, you guys. So thankful this is in this letter. Very powerful story that illustrates the whole point. So before this negative peer pressure comes along to change Peter's behavior and mess with his identity, before this, Peter was fine. He was welcoming the outsiders, right? Welcoming the Gentile believers. Remember Acts 10 and 11? Peter gets this vision from God on a rooftop that Gentiles, all Gentiles welcome. And then Peter goes to Antioch where there's these Gentile believers that want to fully believe. They haven't yet heard the full gospel. And Peter's like, okay. And so he shares a meal with them. Absolutely taboo for a Jew. And when the Jewish, when the Jewish Christians heard about Peter eating with the Gentiles, Peter stands up for the Gentiles against all that peer pressure. Come on, Peter, you did so well. He was a Gentile advocate, right? Right? He saw the Holy Spirit moving in the Gentiles and he championed their inclusion in the family. He saw God move in a group of people that no one expected God to move through. And Peter's rejoicing, eating and drinking, fellowship, you guys. But all of that changed, almost it seems, kind of on a dime. As soon as this group visits, Peter changes as the peer pressure comes on. It says certain men from James or certain men from Jerusalem, let's call them traditionalists. Let's call them that for lack of a better term. A group of traditionalists come along. Are these guys bad guys? 
No. They're like passionate for God, right? They have the Bible. They're passionate for the purity of God's people. They're well-meaning as you can get. They're watching out for the cleanness of God's family. Is that good or bad? Is, is, is walking in cleanness, is walking in righteousness a good thing or a bad thing? Fantastic thing. They're after something that they see as very good here, and it is good. So these traditionalists had a passion and zeal for God. They even had the Bible. They were missing one thing, the shock of the Holy Spirit. They were missing the surprising power of the Spirit. They were attempting to squeeze God into their own categories of acceptable behavior instead of letting the Word and Spirit redefine their categories to embrace the Gentiles as family in all their Gentileness. That's the key part, that last phrase. Gentiles as Gentiles. Not, yes, Gentiles, if they become like us. So key. That's the part the Spirit needed to turn them on to. So right away, there's a pastoral question. Right now, if you're Christian, there's a question you have to engage with based on this. It is, who have we, who have you, excluded from the kingdom because they don't fit your category? Who have you written off? And when I say excluded from the kingdom, I mean withheld your embrace from. Who are you withholding grace and embrace from? And this could be a new thing for us or it can be an old thing. Here's what I mean. Maybe it's a new exclusion. Like Peter, you were once close, but now you're not. For whatever reason, maybe you had a fight with someone in 2021. Or you had that knockdown, drag out Thanksgiving 2020 debate. And it's never been the same. Ask yourself, how can you partner with what the Spirit is up to in that person's life again? What's one step? Maybe it's an old exclusion. And by that, I mean maybe you're like the traditionalists. You've always just written that other group off. And God's inviting you to think of people in totally new categories. Whatever it's been for you around, I mean, the low-hanging fruit is Republican, Democrat, but gay, straight, rich, poor, single, married, transgender, race, people living with mental illness, whatever the box they're in, and your proximity to them, and they're in your life, whatever group they are, you might never say this explicitly, but implicitly, just by the way you're living and ignoring an entire group of people, you might actually be saying implicitly through your life, actually, they really do need to become like me to belong. So ask yourself, how can you immerse yourself in the life of their group, in their world, in their culture or pain, Because what if the Holy Spirit is up to something beautiful there? The shocking Pentecostal fire of the Spirit is about to fall in a Gentile house. Will you be there for it? Because ultimately, what this boils down to, with exclusion and peer pressure, in this text, it boils down to fear. It boils down to fear. Whether we're the the traditionalists and we have all our boxes and we're passionate about God and yet we're missing the spirit. 
Or we're like Peter and, and, and because of peer pressure, we're actually changing and living, con- conflicting, living against our belief. Whatever the reason, it's primary, it's, fear is so powerful, you guys. Galatians 2.12 again says he was afraid. This is why. He was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. He was afraid. And fear isn't all bad. I think fear has a really bad rap right now. You know, this whole faith over fear thing after the last two years. Um, There's some truth, a lot of truth to that. But in a way also fear uh, is a gift. Throughout the scriptures, fear is often a synonym for deep respect and motivation to change. I mean, an obvious example is there is a car coming in your way and you are motivated to change through a healthy respect of inertia and velocity of a large object coming in your... Same thing, expand that all the way out to God. The proverb says, the fear, same word, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's not the end of wisdom, but it gets you rolling. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The idea is fear changes you. Fear motivates you to move. Uh, For better or worse, fear of God makes you wiser. For Peter, fear of the circumcision group, uh, some places, some translations call it the circumcision party. Ain't no party like a circumcision party. That's what I always say. So for Peter, fear of the circumcision party, he was afraid of this group. That fear motivated him to change everything, his belief against what he behaved. Fear is powerful. It made him push away from people he once enjoyed. So here's a question. Who do you, what, who or what do you most fear? Who holds your deepest respect? Another way of asking that, who are you actively seeking to be affirmed by? When you start to be honest about this, we start getting to core identity, don't we? What you think is the truest thing about you. Another way to ask this, who are you consciously trying not to offend? Your parents? Your kids? Friends? Spouse? Jesus? Instagram cancel culture? Who are you most afraid not to offend? Who or what is currently informing your core identity? That's what this all means. Honest answers only, please. However you answer, this is who you fear. This is who you allow tremendous influence over you. To the point it changes your behavior. Subconsciously, even. Peter was afraid of the circumcision group to the point he was changing even against what he believed to be true. That's why Paul said, you've critiqued yourself. And Peter's fear was contagious. Verse 13 says, the other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. Barnabas was a champ who recruited Paul for ministry. And now Barnabas is changing. So Peter shows us the dark side of peer pressure, fear of the wrong thing, resulting in hypocrisy and tribalism. 
But here's where we see the bright side. The bright side of peer pressure. I don't know how often you think of peer pressure as a positive thing, but that's a normal idea in psychology. Peer pressure is a positive thing. You can Google it. It, it, it motivates us for positive change. Uh, Peter's hypocrisy was spreading, so Paul calls him out and, and applies positive peer pressure. Here it is, verse 14. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not a Jew. Okay, how is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? This doesn't add up, buddy. Publicly. There's a public moment of community critique. Paul and Peter needed to do this. The church needed to do this. Galatia needed to hear this. The whole church for all of time has this written in scripture, how to do community, how to be the family together. Paul sees that Peter's not acting in line with what he says he believes and he calls out that inconsistency. You guys, this, in love, in love, this is how you do confrontation in the family of Jesus. We have a confession we agree with. Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ has come again. He's making one new family. He's filled us with the power of the Holy Spirit and Jesus has a way. Jesus has a way of living. I'm submitted to biblical authority. And then one member of the community steps out from biblical authority. You're like, hey, remember that agreement? I love you. I hope you'll do this for me. Come on, let's walk together. Let's get your life and your belief back online. Without this, we don't have honest faith. We don't have honest family. Um, Paul calls it hypocrisy. You understand this. I love, I love Paul's logic. He's like, Peter, you're, you're a Jew. You're a Jew. But because you believe, you believe that Jesus is the king of a multi-ethnic kingdom, you don't think Christianity is just for Jews, right? Like you say this, you believe this. This is what you signed on for. And you even ate and drank with Gentiles to show you believe God's making a whole new family, right? As you should. You should be eating with Gentiles, but now you're going back on what you say. You're going back on what you say. You, you, you say that there's this radically inclusive, exclusive Jesus. He's both inclusive and exclusive. He's inclusive because everyone's invited. No asterisks. Everyone is invited through faith in Jesus alone. That's the exclusive part. And as we have faith in Christ alone, regardless of race, sexuality, disability, gender, orientation, class, culture, you name it, all those other identities out there, whatever we have, black, white, brown, Asian, single, married, gay, straight, trans, other, male, female, other, non-binary, however, whatever identity you bring to the table, all of us equally are invited to surrender those identities and our lives to King Jesus, where all of us are included in pledging allegiance to him, and suddenly he gives us our primary identity. We give, we give our other ones to him, and we let him redefine who we are. Our primary identity becomes child of God, loved. Loved siblings in the family. And, and Paul's like, Peter, you preach this. You preach this, and... Uh, but now you're going back on this. By pulling away from Gentiles and even forcing them to change, to go through Jewish conversion in order to belong. How can this be, he says. How can this be? So this is Paul stepping into Peter's life to remind Peter the gospel he says he believes. 
And this is ultimately to call Peter back into community life. This is how it works, you guys. This is healthy family business. Do you have this? Do you have someone like Paul? Are you part of a community here at Park Hill where these conversations flow freely and the messy, painful, but also beautiful and enriching conversations can actually lead us down these roads of, of, oh my gosh, my life and my belief are not aligned. Help me. We need this. This is the bright side of peer pressure. It's called authentic community, you guys. And we need it desperately. Because just because we believe the gospel's true doesn't mean we walk according to it, right? We need, I need you to remind me who I am. And I, w- I would... you need me to remind you. This is how it works. I for you, you for me. All for one, one for all, I guess. You know? This is is it. And, And we're not just saying, here's what I think you should live by. No, it's like, we have a confession that came to us through the church called the gospel. And when you sign on, you're saying yes to it. And you're also, when you're baptized, I love what baptism is. It's not just for believers, but it's for belongers. When you're baptized, you become a belonger to a thing called the way of Jesus. So being baptized is you saying, hey, I need you to keep me in line and resist the gravity of peer pressure and resist the gravity of negative influences. I need you. And so when I don't even think I need it, there'll come a day when I don't think I need it, but I do. I'm needing you to speak into my life in that moment. How do we feel about this? Do you have this? Peer pressure is powerful both ways, for better or worse. And am I not, is it not right? Almost the better kind of peer pressure, it takes way more intentionality because the worst kind of peer pressure is just automatic. This is why we laugh at things at work that we'd never laugh at in community, right? It's just the way the cookie crumbles. These pressures that are invisible to us all the time, wanting us to forget who we are. So we've already asked the question, who are you most afraid of offending? And who commands your deep respect? We've asked that. I hope we think about that. It's important to answer honestly because our answer reveals who you have given influence over you to shape you. And as we're dead honest with ourselves, if you have slide 19 here, As we're dead honest with ourselves and with the Holy Spirit today, we have to admit we're not always living in line with the gospel we say we believe in. This we're all there. That's this is part of what it means to be human in need of forgiveness all the time. Denying this, (laughs) John wrote, "He who says he has no sin lies." You know. So so we have to admit, we're not always living in line with the gospel we say we believe in. That's key to authentic community. Because then you invite someone in to keep you going, and you them. So you guys, I've been a pastor on the West Coast for like uh, more than half my life. Like, I'm 40. So I was 19 as a youth pastor with my wife um, up up in North County. Yeah. So, so seven years in youth ministry, another seven as a worship pastor who, who also teaches, and then five years planning this church, four years in Portland pastoring creative folks. Um, I've met with hundreds, if not thousands, 
of, of people, young people and old people, who believe Jesus is good and sing worship songs with passion and want to be around church and get better at reading the Bible and prayer and they just want to get better. But when it comes to the big three idols of our day, sex, money, and power, there's like this disconnect. Sex, money, and power, there's this disconnect. And it's this pattern everywhere. And is, I know this is anecdotal, but it's like hundreds upon hundreds of anecdotal stories that I've experienced with folks. It's like there's this level, there's this amnesia that we, we forget details we're Jesus people, but we forget Jesus details around sex and around money and around power. It's like a thing for all of us, including me. And it's, it's like we agree. It's like we agree. Yes, Jesus and the scriptures talk about sex. Jesus has opinions about sex. And I'm a Jesus follower, so I'm supposed to be interested. Yes. But then the thought doesn't occur to us that Jesus' sex teachings might actually conflict with how I'm actually practicing sex. We don't let that actually change who we are. We, so it's kind of, it's like we agree Jesus is right about everything, but there's this massive disconnect between our belief and the integration of that belief into our lived experience. Same goes for money. We say, yeah, Jesus and the Bible talk about money and giving without, but then with, we say that without ever revisiting our actual budget in a spirit of worship and measurably changing our spending and giving based on the gospel. That's very rare. Same goes for power, sex, money, and power, which another word for that is just influence. We're like, yeah, Jesus teaches us about using our influence and our privilege for the kingdom, for the poor, all that, yes. But then we continue gathering, just gathering social media followers without questioning what we're doing or why. We just do it because it's happening. So, this tendency to disconnect our belief from our lives, it's not just limited to sex, money, power either. I've also seen it happen like a lot with just basic Christian doctrine. So it goes like this. I've, uh, I've seen people like passionately sing songs about Jesus, you know, like, you remember that song? Our God is greater. Our God is stronger. God, you are higher than any other. And it's like, Jesus, wow, he's this exclusive deity. According to the Nicene Creed, he's the only God. There are no other. That's the, one of the Ten Commandments. That's amazing. And then in casual conversation, 10 minutes later, they're like, yeah, I just don't, I'm not sure if Christianity is the only way to experience God. Wait a minute. So you just sang, and then you, but that's everywhere, you guys, right now. There's like this disconnect between what we say we believe and how we actually live and behave. And listen, I say this with zero, zero judgment. I'm just pointing out moments of profound disconnect. And we're all prone to this, me included, me included. So in full transparency, you guys, the last couple weeks have been tough uh, for me uh, and as a husband in marriage. And, uh, you know, Sandy and I, every marriage has ups and downs. We've had our ups and downs. But the last month for me has been especially, like, down I've just been, I don't know if it's related to like fresh insecurities, turning 40. I don't know what it is, but maybe there's like a midlife crisis setting in or something. And I'm just more insecure and a little more bitey. I'm just more bitey, snappy with Sandy. And of course, it would happen mostly on Saturday nights before I preach, right? So Saturday night before I preach, uh, I just have a tough spirit 
around Sandy. Then I get up here preaching one new family, and I'm like, peacemaking and Holy Spirit and love and joy. And Sandy's sitting there. I, I don't want to put words in her mouth, but if I was her, I'd be like, are you kidding me? <laughs> but she doesn't say that because she's incredibly kind. So I don't say this. I don't say this to make you wallow with me. I say this to highlight the point. No one is exempt from this disconnect. We say Jesus and then we live anti-Jesus, which is why we need community. We're so prone to disconnect what we say we believe from how we really live. Then comes the peer pressure of our sinful environment. This is how it goes. Our disconnect is wider and wider and so our Christianity isn't even recognizable anymore. This is why we need community, the community of Jesus. So let me pose that last sentence in the form of a question. Do you intentionally surround yourself with consistent, regular, messy community around Bible, prayer, and food? Very simple question. As your friendly neighborhood, brother in Christ, pastor slash friend, whatever, like you can't survive without that. Base level survival in Jesus in, in this moment. As the West continues to secularize, this will be the only way. Not just the only way to thrive, but the only way to keep changing against the negative pressure around us. And we'll change, if we do, we'll change into what Jesus calls life to the fullest. So just to wrap up and bring us to the table, one of my favorite pictures of this change journey. I've said it before on a Sunday. Maybe I've said it too recently for this to land. I can't remember how long ago, but how many of you have been to like a summer camp and um, you've done the leap of faith? It's my favorite analogy for the change process. The leap of faith, like actual, like jumping off of a tree, crazy town with a harness and carabiners and all that. So what happens to your mind? What happens to your mind when you're on that platform and you have your friends at the bottom and you have the harness around your body giving you a wedgie and then, and you're believing, you're believing that this harness that is, that is just awkwardly holding you, it, it will keep holding you. you. You know in your mind that this thing will keep holding you and you will not die. Your mind knows. But, but the rest of your body <laughs> has lived so many years and been designed over so much time to believe in gravity, not the harness. Your body believes in gravity instead. Um, and and, and so, so you go to jump and your, your friends, your group, is that like, you can do this. We are here, not only are two dudes on the rope where you won't die, but we're here and we'll cheer when you finally do make it. You might not make the first jump, but it took me three jumps. Someone else is like, I did it the first time. You're like, shut up. I can't do that. <laughs> and, and, and they're like, you can do this. And, and your body is disbelieving reality. The reality is that you can because of science. Um, so then you jump, and the, but then you don't leave. <laughs> you don't leave the platform. You thought you jumped, but you didn't. <laughs> because your body doesn't believe it. You still don't believe it. You're like, well, I don't know how to jump anymore. Um, until finally, after enough community f- fun and laughter, and you can do this, you jump and you all, basically always miss the first one. 
and everybody kind of laughs and has fun and then gets you back up, right? Till finally the third or fourth try, you grab the trapeze thing, whatever the little bar is, you made it. There's cheering, you go get Abba Zabba or whatever. You go get candy. That was my favorite one back then. That was my reward. So this is, this is an illustration for community. This is the process. There is a thing called peer pressure and negative pressure all around you that your flesh, your physical, emotional body still believes in. You do not believe in the power of the Spirit to change you. You do not believe in the power of the Spirit to change you, even though the gospel is true, even though the harness cannot fail. Father, Son, Holy Spirit have you by the rope. Your body thinks you're going to die. And, and your community laughs and, and cheers, and you don't believe them. Your body can't until you do. And you step into the mess, and you jump, and you try to change in a way you never have before. And suddenly, after you've done it a few times, you're like, why was I ever scared? Why was there ever fear attached to this? It's so easy now. This is the growth process. This is the spiritual journey. Your mind teaches the rest of your behavior and lines you up with the truth about reality. This is what was getting off for Peter because of peer pressure. This is why he needed community to bring him back on. Do you have this? Do you have a community preaching the truth into your body around a literal meal that's going into your body around relationships? This is why the bread and the cup are so important. It is an embodied agreement with who God says you are. You eat it and you say amen to who God says you are. We need this, you guys. We need, we need this to thrive. You can change. You can change by Jesus' power. You don't just have to, I've said this before, you don't just have to grind out another 30 years just trying to make it. You can change at your deepest level through belonging in community. That's where baptism starts, turns you from, it turns you into not just a believer. I think Rick Warren said this in an interview. You're not just a believer at baptism, you are a belonger. This is what this means. And the invitation to you today is to thrive and change in community. Let the Holy Spirit reparent you reparent you away from tendencies you've picked up toward the tendencies of the kingdom of God where life to the fullest is found. That's the invite. So, so one of the ways we respond is through communion, but very practically is to sign up for a community. In a couple of months, um, we're going to have a brand new onboarding for community groups. We're going to have a new basics class. It'll feel different where you actually go through the class and learn what it means to be part of a community group here at Park Hill. We've prayed about changes we're making to the structure. More on that later. We're going to tell the community leaders about it soon. But, but right now, how can you take one step closer to the kind of relationship that Paul was for Peter. Hey, I'm calling you back into life. And I expect you to do the same for me. Heavenly Father, would you animate us in this direction? Animate us toward one another. We need each other to change. The forces of our world are too strong. If we put it on autopilot, we don't have a chance. 
We trust in you. And then we trust in you so much that we believe the harness will carry us. So we jump. We step in faith. We jump away from the patterns of the world that dehumanize and the ways we behave that dehumanize others. We jump away from those things toward you, toward the community that you've given us. We're going to start with a song, and then after this song, we'll come to the table. This song is just a song about the goodness of the Father. If you don't even know where to start, if you're like, I'm not ready for community, and, and this, this felt like a hard sell, and I don't really know where I'm at at this point. If that's you, 100% get it. The primary invitation for you is to run to the Father. The same Father that declared Jesus is loved. Look, look at my beloved son in the river. He has my love. He invites you to see yourself in the same way. If you confess Jesus as Lord of your life, guess what? He sees you in Jesus in that water. And his words become, look at my beloved daughter. Look, I'm so proud. I'm so pleased. My good heart is so for her. And my son, you're, you're right there with my son, Jesus, right in the water with him. And you receive the same pronouncement. Behold, my son, I'm so proud of my son. I'm so proud of my son. Look at what, he stepped into life in Christ. I'm pleased. How, what would it look like for you right now to say yes to the father? Can we all stand together?